Welcome to Unsolved Mysteries of the World, Season 6, Episode 12, Japan Airlines, Flight 1608. It was November 17, 1986, and a huge Japanese Boeing 747-200F cargo aircraft was en route from Paris, France, to Narita International Airport, near Tokyo, Japan. It was an uneventful flight until the aircraft was above Alaska, near Anchorage. At 1,711 hours, crew noted specifically that they observed two strange objects coming up to the left side of their aircraft. They rose from below and proceeded to maintain a similar speed and appeared to be escorting the cargo jet. All three crew members, Captain Kenju Turochi, an ex-fighter pilot with more than 10,000-hour flight experience in the cockpit's left-hand seat, co-pilot Takanori Tamafuji in the right-hand seat, and flight engineer Yoshia Tsukuba all witnessed the objects approach the flight. As the objects got closer, they noted each had two rectangular arrays of what appeared to be glowing nozzles or thrusters, though their main frames remained obscured by darkness. The captain believed they were some sort of military aircraft and were simply identifying the flight, but their maneuverability was mind-boggling. Quote, The thing was flying as if there was no such thing as gravity. It sped up, then stopped, then flew at our speed, in our direction, so that to us it appeared to be standing still. The next instant, it changed course. In other words, the flying object had overcome gravity, recalls the captain. Then suddenly, the two objects came closer and illuminated the entire cabin and produced an intense heat. Air traffic control was notified at this point, who could not confirm any traffic in the indicated position. After three to five minutes, the objects assumed a side-to-side -side configuration, which they maintained for another ten minutes. Each object had a square shape consisting of two rectangular arrays of what appeared to be glowing nozzles or thrusters, separated by a dark central section. The captain speculated in his drawings that the objects would appear cylindrical if viewed from another angle, and that the observed movement of the nozzles could be ascribed to the cylinder's rotation. Then, the two craft then departed as quickly as they came. But then the crew noticed something even more strange. A much larger craft was now tailing them. This time, they could identify its shape, and each of the crew had detailed a disc-shaped flying craft was behind them. Captain Tirochi now noticed a pale band of light that mirrored their altitude, speed, and direction, setting their onboard radar scope to 25 nautical miles. He confirmed an object in the expected 10 o'clock direction at about 7.5 nautical miles and informed air traffic control of its presence. Anchorage found nothing on their radar, but Elmendorf's NORAD Regional Operations, the control center, directly in its flight path, reported a surge primary return after some minutes. As the city lights of Fairbanks began to illuminate the object, the captain believed to perceive the outline of a gigantic spaceship on his port side that was twice the size of an aircraft carrier. 
the object followed in formation or in the same relative position throughout the 45-degree turn, a descent from 35,000 feet to 31,000 feet, and a 360-degree turn. The short-range radar at Fairbanks Airport failed, however, to register the object. Anchorage Air Traffic Control offered military intervention, which was declined by the pilot. The object was not noted by any of the other two planes which approached Japan Airlines 1628 to confirm its presence. And as these other two planes approached, Japan Airlines 1628 had also lost sight of it. The captain cited in the official Federal Aviation Administration report that the object was indeed a UFO. In December of 1986, he gave an interview to two Kyoto news journalists. Japan Airlines soon grounded him for talking to the press and moved him to a desk job. He was only reinstated as a pilot years afterwards and retired eventually in North Kanto, Japan. Kyoto News contacted Paul Stewick, the FAA Public Information Officer in Anchorage, on December 24th and received confirmation about the incident. The FAA's Alaskan region consulted John Callahan, the FAA Division Chief of the Accidents and Investigations Branch, as they wanted to know what to tell the media about this UFO. John Callahan at the time was unaware of the incident and considered it a likely early flight of a stealth bomber then in development. He asked the Alaskan region to forward the relevant data to their technical center in Atlantic City, New Jersey, where he and his superior played back the radar data and tied it in with voice tapes by videotaping the concurrent playbacks. A day later, at FAA headquarters, they briefed Vice Admiral Donald D. Engine, who watched the whole video for over a half an hour, and asked them not to talk to anybody until they were given the okay, and to prepare an encompassing presentation of the data for a group of government officials the next day. The meeting was attended by representatives of the FBI, the CIA, and President Reagan's scientific study team, among others. Upon completion of the presentation, all present were told that the incident should remain secret and that their meeting never took place. They even asked Callahan to destroy all the evidence. According to Callahan, the officials considered the data to represent the first instance of recorded radar data on a UFO, and they took possession of all his presentation data. John Callahan, however, managed to retain the original video the pilot's report, and the FAA's first report in his office. The forgotten target printouts of the computer data were also rediscovered, from which all targets can be reproduced that were in the sky at the time. After a three-month investigation, the FAA formally released the results at a press conference held on March 5, 1987. Here, Paul Stewick retracted earlier FAA suggestions that their controllers confirmed a UFO, and ascribed it to a split radar image, which appeared with unfortunate timing. He clarified that the FAA did not have enough material to confirm that something was up there, and though they were accepting the descriptions by the crew, they were unable to support what they saw. 
The report that was made last November 17th of a UFO spotted over Alaska attracted special attention. This sighting was made by an airline pilot with 29 years of experience. The crew claims that while it was flying over Alaska last November, it was followed for 400 miles by strange white, yellow, and amber light. The sighting received special attention from the media as a supposed instance of the tracking of UFOs on both ground and airborne radar while being observed by experienced airline pilots with subsequent confirmation by an FAA division chief. It would have been the end of the UFO story, but for an extraordinary observation by a military aircraft just a short time after the Japan Airlines incident. On January 30th, 1987, a U.S. Air Force KC-135 was flying from Elmendorf Air Force Base, Anchorage, Alaska, to Eelson Air Force Base near Fairbanks. The crew of the KC-135 reported a large, silent, disc-shaped UFO at about 20,000 feet altitude. At this time, Anchorage radar control showed nothing unusual. In a moment, radar control asked the pilot of the plane if they still had the unknown object in sight. The frightened pilot replied yes and added that the UFO was only 40 feet from the plane. The cockpit recording referenced the Japan Airlines 1628 incident, which had only occurred a month earlier. The pilots of the military aircraft were startled as they observed what they believed was a similar shaped object, flying in the same manner and maneuvering just the same as the one previously reported by the Japanese Airlines flight. About 30 minutes later, Anchorage Control Tower relayed a message from the FAA informing the pilot to contact them upon landing. The FAA wanted a full report on the UFO seen by the crew. The very next day, on January 31st, another similar sighting occurred over Alaskan skies. Alaska Airlines Flight 53 reported enormous disc-like objects flying near their aircraft. These UFOs, according to the pilot's report, were tracking Flight 53. The control tower operator said to the pilot that they did not show anything unusual on radar. The pilot of Flight 53 was very concerned, stating that the UFO was moving at a mile per second, which would be about 3,600 miles per hour. The pilot also stated that the UFO had almost immediately disappeared after flying under Flight 53. Neither of these encounters were adequately explained by any conventional flying objects or atmospheric anomalies and remain a mystery. The reports requested never surfaced. In 2006, John Callahan gave his eyewitness testimony about his official investigation into the Japanese airline incident. The leader line, they call it, that points toward the, uh, the target itself, this is what is altitude, and the altitude's normally uh, written down in uh, hundreds. Uh, and see that little, yep. the little dot right there? That dot don't belong there. That's the unknown, is that dot that's in front of that uh, slash. He doesn't belong there. I'm one of those what you would call the high government officials in the FAA. I was the division chief. There was only three or four down from the admiral. I became the branch chief for the quality control. The quality control branch 
later on became a division and I became a division chief and they called it the Accidents Investigations uh, Branch in uh, Washington, D.C. We, we investigated all the airline incidences, all the accidents. I stayed there for about six years and then uh, retired. The, the way it started is the, uh, there was a 747, a Japanese uh, airline, 747 was coming from the northwest going across uh, the Alaskan uh, territory. And he was at either 31, 33, or 35,000 feet. And uh, it was, uh, I want to say around 11 o'clock at night, but you can check the real times. He called and asked the controller if the controller had any traffic at his uh, altitude. And the controller said uh, no. Basically, it was a midnight operation. They didn't have too much traffic. And he said, well, something like I have uh, a, a target at my uh, uh, 11 o'clock or 1 o'clock position, about 8 miles. Now, in the 747, they have radar in the nose that picks up the weather outside there. So his radar is picking up uh, a target. He sees this target with his, uh, with his eye. And the target, the way he described it, was a huge ball with uh, lights running around it. And uh, I think he said it was like four times as big as a 747. Well, on the day I'm doing PERs, I got behind and I told the uh, secretary not to bother me, I'm doing PERs. And a few minutes later, the phone's ringing and then she wouldn't stop calling. So I asked what was going on. She says, you've got to talk to the people in Alaska. So I said, all right. So uh, I forgot who it was that called. But he says, we've got a problem here. I don't know what to tell the media. The whole uh, uh, office is full of uh, uh, the media from Alaska. Said, What's the problem? He says, well, it's that UFO. I said, what UFO? He says, well, we, uh, uh, last week we had a UFO chase the 747 across the skies up here for about 30 minutes or so, and uh, we didn't think too much of it, he says, but apparently the word got out, and we have all these news people here, and we want to know what to tell them. So being an old government employee, I told him what you always tell them, is tell them it's under investigation, and then get all that data together. I wanted all the discs that they had, and, and all the tape, uh, the tapes that they had available, and flown overnight to the tech center at Atlantic City. But they called the military, and they told the military they wanted all their tapes. We also control the FAA controls all the airspace uh, above the United States and its territory. It doesn't belong to the military. It doesn't belong to the, to the guys shooting the rockets off. It belongs to the United States government, and it's controlled by the FAA. Nobody moves in this airspace unless we get the uh, approval. So I told them to get the uh, military's tapes and all their data and ship that down. Well, they called back an hour or so later, and they said the military said they were short on, on the tapes, and they had to put them back in service, and it's only been 12 days. So the administrator sent, uh, my boss was the associate director, um, Javi Safir, sounds like safer, but it's Safir, sent him and me to Atlantic City to look at this thing to see if he had uh, something to worry about. So we went in and told him that we wanted this room set up to be just like it was in Anchorage, and we wanted all that data to come to this scope, and we wanted to see everything the controller seen, we wanted to hear everything he heard, and we wanted it all tied together, the, uh, the radar, the digital radar, and the sound. Found out later that some of the people that were working on that side of the fence that were displaying this had already reviewed the uh, tapes and didn't feel comfortable in showing us what was on there. Uh, but they ran it through. When the air traffic controller 
had asked the military man, do you see anything? The military guy says, yes, I have a target at such and such. One o'clock and eight miles from the uh, Japanese uh, pilot, 747. The military man said something like, uh, uh, yeah, I see him 35 miles north of uh, uh, Anchorage. And who's that at uh, 11 or one o'clock uh, in his position? And the FAA controller said, uh, I don't have anybody. Do you have anybody? He said, it's not mine. And he came back and said, we have uh, no traffic here. And a couple times during the, uh, the operation, the Japanese pilot would say he's now at 11 o'clock, he's now at 1 o'clock, he's now at 3 o'clock, he was bouncing around this guy here. And when he would say that, the military guy would cut in and say he's now at 2 o'clock or 3 o'clock, and he would confirm the position. The military controller has what they call height-finding radar, and they have long-range radar and short-range radar. So if they don't catch it on one of their systems, they catch it on the other. And if you listen to the uh, military man, at one time he said, I have it on the height uh, radar or my range radar, whatever he called it, which indicated that he had a target on his system. Uh, Oz wouldn't record it. While they, they ran through for the best part of 31 minutes, the uh, UFO would be in one position or the other following our Japanese 747. Uh, after a while, uh, they changed his altitude. It still stayed with him. They gave him a 360. When you're a 747, you make a 360, it takes you a few minutes to turn around. You cover a lot of space. It still stayed with him. It was either in the front, in the side, or behind him. Zero. I approved 1628 to make deviations as necessary for traffic. The traffic stayed with 1628 through turns and descents in the vicinity of uh, uh, Fairbanks. I requested 1620 to make a right 360. They would see that the, the target be at 1 o'clock and 7 or 8 miles, and then next it would be uh, on the next sweep, which would be like 10 seconds later, it would be behind him uh, 7 or 8 miles, and it always stayed 7 or 8 miles away from the target when it was all done. And uh, we went back to uh, Washington the next day. The uh, administrator had called down and uh, wanted to know uh, if, if uh, he had a problem or not. And my boss had told him, well, we took a video of it, and uh, it looks like there might have been something there. Well, his thing was, uh, can you come up and give us a quick five-minute uh, rundown of what happened? So we go up to the 10th floor, and uh, in the conversation of a four- or five-minute uh, debriefing, the uh, administrator, which was Ingen at the time, Admiral Ingen, he said, uh, well, have you got that video with you? Can you show me the video? And I said, yeah, and then, you know, just plug it in and play it. So we plugged it in for him. He started watching it, and after about five minutes, he told the staff, I cancel my, uh, he had a meeting with someone in 15 minutes. He says, first he said, I'll be late, and then next it was uh, cancel, and then uh, uh, I'm going to be here till this is over. So he watched the whole thing just over half an hour. When he got all. This was the administrator of FAA. The administrator of the FAA. We got all done. He says, what do you guys think? Well, my... Uh, I guess that's why he was the service director and I wasn't. Uh, he gave a good political answer that said he, he wasn't sure what it was. Didn't know if it was anything. So his take was, don't talk to anybody. Don't talk to anybody until I give you uh, the okay. The next day, I got a call from someone with the uh, scientific uh, study group or the uh, CIA, I'm not sure who it was the first time. And they wanted to know, uh, they had some questions about the, uh, the incident. And I had said, I, I don't know what you're talking about. You probably want to call the Admiral. A few minutes later, the Admiral calls down and says, I set up a, uh, a briefing tomorrow morning at 9 or 10 o'clock, what it was. 
in the round room, bring all the stuff you have, bring everybody up there, and uh, give them whatever they want. And we want to get out of it, just let them do whatever they want to do with it. So I brought all the people from the tech center. We went upstairs, we had all kinds of boxes of data that we had them print out, filled up the room. They brought in uh, three people from the FBI, three people from the CIA, and three people from Reagan's scientific uh, study team, and I don't know who the rest of the people were. But they were all excited. We gave them the, v uh, the video, let them watch the video. Then I had the, uh, they had all kinds of questions about the frequencies, the, uh, the rate of the antenna uh, turning, uh, uh, on and on and on, how many, uh, how many radars, how many antennas, how does the data get processed, uh, they were all uh, uh, excited, the only way a man would be if that was his job. When they got done, they t actually swore all these other guys into uh, uh, that this never took place. We never had this meeting and this was never recorded. Now, what I tried to tell you before... Who said that? Who was saying that? This was uh, one of the guys from the uh, CIA, okay, that the... Uh, uh, they were never there, this never happened. When I asked them at the time, I said, well, I don't know why you're saying this. I mean, it's, uh, it, it, there was something there, and if it's not the, uh, the, the stealth bomber, then, you know, it's a UFO. And if it's a UFO, why wouldn't you want to, uh, the people to know? Oh, they get all excited over that. You don't even want to say those words. He said this is the first time they ever had 30 minutes of radar data on a UFO, and they're all itching to get their hands into the data and to find out what it is and what, what really goes. And if they come out and told the American public that they ran into a UFO out there, it would cause panic across the country, so therefore you can't talk about it. And they're taking all this data. So I said, okay, take all that data. That's what you want. Who but took the data? The, the, well, that group. I don't know who it went to, but that group took it. Um, but they took only what we had there. They didn't ask me if there was anything else that I had. They said they're taking all this data. And I said, fine. Now, I had the original uh, video that uh, I took, and I had the, uh, the uh, pilot's uh, uh, report that came through, uh, the first report, and I had the FAA's uh, uh, first report that was all downstairs on my, uh, my table. They didn't ask for that, and so I didn't give it to them. And uh, later on, when I retired, uh, that was the stuff that was in my office, and all that came, uh, came with me, and we've been sitting on that ever since. So we watched the whole thing. Uh, what happened at the end is as the Japanese 747 is, is leaving the airspace, there's a United coming up to land in Alaska. The controller says to the United, uh, we've got a uh, Japanese 747 up here that he's been, uh, is being chased, uh, followed by a UFO. We'd like you to check him out. Can we leave you at the altitude? And the United says, fine or sure. And so they give him a left turn 20 degrees or so, keep them at his altitude, and they kind of run them in toward the Japanese uh, 747. Once the two airplanes pass, that target follows the United down through the airspace and, until he uh, gets on final and then disappears. When they read the reports that come through, the FAA has to protect themselves so you can't say you saw a target, even though this is what he said. So they made him change his report to position symbols, which makes it sound like it wasn't really a target. Well, if that's not a target, then a lot of the other position symbols that we're separating from aren't targets either. And when I read that, I thought, ah, there's something fishy here. 
that somebody's worried about something rather than they're trying to cover up. When the CIA uh, uh, told us that this never happened and uh, uh, we never had this meeting, uh, I, I believe it was because they didn't want the public to know that this was going on. Normally we would, uh, we would put out some type of a uh, news release that such and such happened. That I think it was uh, uh, mysterious that the military tapes uh, disappeared. It wasn't right. Uh, we went from 30 days to 15 days, and the first indication makes it look like it must have been a, a military uh, operation that they were doing up there, or the military knew more than we did about uh, who the visitors were, and they didn't want anybody else to know. And of course, the people that are involved at the lower levels don't really know what's going on above them. When someone calls up and says, put those tapes back in service, they just put them back in service. They really don't care. When they asked me what I thought, I told them that uh, it looked like we had a UFO that was up there. The reason it wasn't on the FAA's uh, tapes was because it was too large of, a, of an aircraft and it was picked up as weather so we wouldn't record it that the pilot, the Japanese pilot, seen it. The Japanese pilot drew pictures of it. Uh, eventually, they gave the Japanese pilot a hard time because of what he said he was embarrassing his country. Uh, our military controllers uh, said they seen it. Our FAA controllers uh, said they seen it. Our FAA controllers, after a period of time, came back and said they really didn't see a target. They saw something else, which makes it sound like somebody is helping them fill out their reports and therefore that looks suspicious. During the period of uh, 2030, uh, I was on duty and I was working the D-50. I'm making this statement to clarify certain points in my original statement on November the 19th. This was January the 6th. Uh, my guess is, uh, uh, because of the way it was, it's not part of the military's uh, operation anymore, that it was a UFO. But who do you tell that you were involved in a UFO incident without them looking at you like you ain't wrapped too tight. And this, is, I think, is the way our country is set up now. If someone comes out and says, I saw a UFO on TV, the only ones that see a UFO in the TV programs are the rednecks out in the country that, uh, that are going coon hunting or, or alligator hunting at night. You don't find uh, anybody with any kind of smarts or, or uh, some professional individual saying, hey, uh, last night, let me tell you what I saw. They don't display that in the United States. So if you talk about seeing a UFO, you're putting yourself in a funny kind of a category. That's probably one reason why you don't hear about it anymore. As far as I'm concerned, I saw a UFO chase a Japanese 747 across the sky for over half an hour on radar. And see, all these little, these little hits are something that they have to explain all the time. If uh, you can go within a, uh, it was a 10 second radar, so at one o'clock and seven miles, uh, you see them and then 10 seconds later, or even not even 10 seconds later, it's less than 10 seconds because when the system uh, got southwest of the, uh, the, the sweep got southwest of the uh, uh, Japanese 747, it picked them up again. So it would go from one o'clock, seven or eight miles to uh, six, seven o'clock, seven or eight miles inside of uh, four or five seconds, uh, you have to be moving pretty quickly. And it's faster than anything that uh, I know of in, the, uh, in our government. I know, it's 2.36.50, so. Okay, we're right on time. We're close enough, I think. I've been involved in a lot of cover-ups uh, with the FAA. 
when we gave the uh, pre presentation to the uh, uh, Reagan staff, uh, I was behind the uh, group uh, that was there. And when they were speaking to the, the people in the room, they had all those people swear that this never happened. They never had me swear it never happened. It always bothered me that we have these things going on, and when you see something or you hear something on the radio or TV, the news, that it's, it's put down as it's not there. Uh, I have a hard time saying nothing because it's not there. When I first told uh, uh, those that I knew about this, uh, it just died. I mean, nothing, nothing ever happens. So you look at it kind of funny, like, and it, it still bothers me that... Uh, that uh, I've seen all this, I know all this, and like I, I'm, I'm walking around like with the answer, and nobody wants to ask the question to get the answer, and it kind of irritates me a little bit. And I don't believe our government should be uh, set up that way. I think when we have something like this, that you could probably find out more about what's going on in the world. If they can travel that far, that distance, with that type of machinery, who knows what they could do here for the health of the nation, of the people, the food they could give them, uh, the cancers we could cure. They have to know more than us to be able to travel in that speed. I sure would like to know what's going on. And that's one reason why uh, uh, I'm not afraid to talk about what's happening. What I can tell you is what I've seen with my own eyes. And I said, I've got a videotape. I've got uh, a lot. I've got the voice tape. I've got the reports that were filed that will uh, confirm what I've been telling you. Those people that say that uh, if these UFOs existed, then someday it would be on radar and that to be professionals would see it. Then I can tell them that in, back in 1986 there were enough professional uh, people that saw it. Uh, it was brought down to headquarters, FAA headquarters, Washington, D.C. The administrators seen the, uh, the tape of it. Uh, the people that we were uh, debriefing, they've all seen. Uh, Reagan scientific study team, uh, the three of those uh, uh, professors, uh, doctors, they've seen it. Uh, as far as I was concerned, they, uh, uh, they were the ones that verified uh, my own uh, thoughts about it. Uh, they were very, very excited about the data. They had said at that time this was the, uh, was the only time, and they had used the words, a UFO was ever recorded on radar for any length of a time where it's 30-some uh, minutes, and they have all this data to look at. Now, a 30-minute uh, radar return uh, filled up boxes across the thing, and the boxes were stacked, uh, you know, two or three high. There was a lot of uh, paper data to look at. They knew the frequency now of the radar. They knew how fast it turned. They knew where it was. Uh, they had the military that confirmed it. And when I gave my card, the CIA guy said, uh, you know, we're with the company. They don't say CIA. In the company, we don't have cards. We don't have company cards. They may have a card, but it's nothing to do with the company. And he said that there's, there's nothing we can give out. I'm sure on the Admiral's uh, calendar, they have who reserved that, or they should have, who reserved the room and who was there uh, for the day of the briefing. Even the Admiral had to talk about it wherever he went because uh, he canceled too many meetings to watch this thing here. And it was late at night when we got back. We got back at either 4.30, quarter to 5. Uh, uh, and, you know, they, well, he canceled his meetings. And to me, that meant that, uh, that uh, he thought it was something to see. We had a, uh, 
a government uh, investigator come by checking uh, just a few weeks ago, checking on a, uh, uh, an individual that we know for his security clearance with the CIA. And she's with the CIA checking on him to make sure he's an okay guy. And during this period of time, I had said, well, I've been involved with the CIA one other time. And, oh, what was that? So when I started giving her this UFO thing, you could see her, her look like she's in the room with two kooks, you know, and like, can I get out of here safe? It's the only thing you can see on her face. And it was panic. And I'm thinking, well, that's the way the world But I think that's the way the government wants the outside people to view those that have seen something like this, like they are kooks, they're not wrapped too tight, and you gotta watch out for them. That's the image that they put out. Uh, I guess I really don't care about the image, but uh, I do feel like they had something and that we've seen it. So what can we make out of these sightings made by credible witnesses, including Air Force pilots, flight engineers, experienced pilots, air traffic controllers, and aviation investigators. It is obvious that something was witnessed, independently verified over the course of three separate encounters by both aircraft and ground crews. But what was it? And more importantly, why was it seemingly tracking and observing these three aircraft? Is it the occupants on the aircraft that held interest? or the cargo they were carrying. Hey guys, check out this episode's show sponsor, the Sip and Shine podcast, a retro-inspired cocktail podcast party of intriguing tales of histories, scandals, pop culture, and hot mess struggles. From true crime to ghosts and hauntings, and all the topics you enjoy, especially with a few glasses of wine. Find the Sip and Shine podcast on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, or your other favorite podcast directory. For more information, just visit www.sipandshinepodcast.com. Here is the host of the Sip and Shine podcast to tell you more. Remember to visit our show sponsor, the Sip and Shine podcast. Find them on iTunes, Google Play, or your other favorite podcast directory. For more information, just visit www.sipandshinepodcast.com. Hey, 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 it's Carrie, and I host the Sip and Shine podcast. Despite my 13-year-old sounding voice, I invite you to come listen on your favorite podcast catchers as I chronicle stories of histories, mysteries, scandals, true crimes to cults, ghosts. We probably got your jam, and we aren't judging over here. So, of course, because this is an unscholarly podcast, we add in copious amounts of wine, inappropriate humor, candy, and reality TV references. So, come pour a glass and sip with me.